We're going to learn this morning, um, there is this tune being played in history, uh, even in the nature of God himself and in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And that tune is an equality that submits and an equality that leads. There's a tune being played. It starts in God's nature. It gets woven into the fabric of creation, and it gets played out most powerfully in the gospel. And God desires that tune to be played out in the local church uh, and how men and women relate. If that sounds outstanding to you, outstanding to you, or you have trouble understanding, look at verse 3. Verse 3, because I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Do you notice how... How wives and husbands should relate is related to God himself. How the head of Christ is God. Before we dive into that verse, look at verse 2, just so you guys understand what's going on. Uh, Paul says, I praise you because you remember me in everything and for holding to the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Most likely, uh, these traditions that Paul had delivered to the Corinthians were about how the gospel radically puts men and women on equal standing before God. If you notice, the passage is talking about uh, when men and women pray and prophesy in public. There's a deep equality there. I think Paul's thinking through probably uh, traditions like Galatians, which say that in Christ there is no man or woman. Your, your gender does not determine your status before God, which sounds totally obvious to us, right? But in first century Rome, that would have been radical. That would have been crazy. Um, And the reason I think that those traditions refer to the gospel which frees up and equals men and women in the sight of God uh, is because the next thing he says is but in verse 3. But I want you to understand this, that this is authority. Um, And so here's, here's the logic, I think, just so you guys understand what's going on in the text. The logic is I am so glad that in this church, You guys are treating men and women equally. They both get to pray in public. They both can prophesy in public. They both have rights before God. You see them equally. I'm so glad you're doing that. But I want you to understand this, that even though the gospel radically frees people out of cultural bondage, bad views of men and women, even though though that's true, the gospel does not abolish or destroy the distinctions between men and women. There's still a realness to our gender that impacts our lives and the way we live in the church. I think that's what's going on. But we'll focus on verse 3 for about 15 minutes because it's so important. So this is, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Before we go to husbands and wives, let's talk about God for a moment. Um, the head of Christ is God. Now consider this for a second, okay? Uh, if you're a Christian, um, you believe that Jesus Christ, who became a man, right, was born in the year zero, right? He, he was fully 100% God himself in the flesh. He was God. He wasn't less than God in any, any sense. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14 says the Word became flesh. That's Jesus. If you ever... Uh, if you ever need a quick argument for Jesus' divinity, let's say a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your apartment complex door and it's getting awkward, okay, here's what you do. Say, hey, Jehovah's Witness, uh, does the second commandment prohibit worshiping people besides God? And they say, well, of course it does, you know. 
They'd be very all about that. They'd say, well, why then does Jesus accept worship from all sorts of people in the Gospels? Why does Revelation 5 say that everyone in creation is worshiping Jesus? He embra- Jesus embraces worship. He's God himself. He is equal to the Father. But yet, um, when he comes, he says, I am the Son, and I listen to my Father. How does the Son relate to a Father? Well, he obeys his Father. He submits to his Father. Um, Christ is equal to God the Father, but he chooses, he chooses in love, to submit to him, to follow the Father's leadership. Just, just consider for a second. Um, and this, this will help us in a moment when we get to the, the yeast stuff, okay? Um, at the very heart of the meaning of the universe, in the center of the being who is life himself, who created the universe, in him there is equality yet leadership, equality yet submission. That exists in God, in his nature. And it doesn't just exist in God. Um, If this wasn't a reality, nobody in here could be saved. Think about that. The gospel. The gospel of Jesus. The story of God becoming a man and taking on human flesh and, and, and dying for your sins that you could be right with God. That is a story of a son submitting to his father. That's, that's a story of Jesus choosing to follow, to follow the Father's initiative. The Father planned salvation. Jesus chose to follow him and, and accomplish salvation. That's the gospel. So right at the heart of the two most important things there are in the nature of God and in the gospel of Jesus, there is this dynamic, this music, if you will, of equal persons who have different roles. Um... I do want to say, though, that this idea for most Americans is abhorrent. Uh, we don't really like authority. Um, Americans are the kind of people that will speed and then get mad when they get pulled over. You know, like like we just like that's just cra- that's crazy, right? Like like you're breaking the law and you get mad when you get caught. Like that's insane. But but we just we as a culture, one thing we've done. I, I think a lot of the freedoms we have in America are wonderful. Like, we're a free nation. We're an independent nation. That's great. But one thing that our culture has gone to the extreme is, is we have asserted that we are independent of authority, that we can be our own person, that there should be nothing that constrains the way I define myself or, the way that, or, or what I respond to. And I will just say, if you have a real issue with what the scriptures say about marriage and about gender, that is ultimately an issue in your response to God's authority, to his ability to speak into your life. And the wonderful thing about that is that if it's sin, if it's a rebellion against God, it can be covered by the blood of Jesus. It can be changed by his grace. All right, so there is this dynamic, this music in God himself. And God intends for our genders and the way we relate to each other in our genders to reflect that. Look at the rest of verse 3. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. This equal yet leading, equal yet submitting, flows down from God to us. The head of Christ is the father. The head of a husband is Christ. And the head of a wife is her husband. 
The idea is the same way, in the same way that Christ missed the Father, as an equal, choosing to follow someone's leadership. So a wife should submit to her husband in the same way that the Father leads Christ, in love, initiating in love. So a husband should lead his wife. And that requires some explanation, of course. Does that mean that a Christian husband is the boss of his wife? Of course not. Does it mean that a wife should obey her husband and not God? Of course not. Does it mean that women are constrained to those traditional roles? No, it doesn't, doesn't say any of that. It just says that the dynamic that exists in God himself should exist in Christian marriages. And by extension, even in the ways genders relate in general. Um, there is this, this tune that God wishes to play in the way the sexes relate, in the way husband and wives relate. Now, um, let's just try to apply this for a second. Um, I think the primary principle in this passage is that God's desire is that you use your gender to express his nature. I'll say that again. All right. One of the main principles here is that God has God's will is for you to express your gender in a way that reflects God's nature. Um, if you're a male, you're to reflect the Father's nature, his initiative, his gentle, loving leadership, his protecting, the way he guides. If you're a female, you're, you're to reflect the Son's willing submission, the Son's desire to honor the Father, the Son's help in accomplishing the Father's mission. Um, let me just flesh that out. Uh, this is m more my thoughts towards non-married people. Uh, guys, I think this means, even if you're not a husband, that you are at the least a husband in training, or you are a you are a man called in the context of a local church to lead and to serve and to initiate. You should be so. I think the first step, especially in our, our culture, is that you take ownership over your own life. That, that, that you become a person who is responsible and independent as a man, and, and then that you take on a tone of life that initiates and that leads and that takes responsibility for others. It's really tempting, I think, especially as a guy, to come to a church to enjoy what it has to offer, but to never step up and lead, to always expect someone else to be initiating. And as a man, particularly as a man, God is calling you to express his nature and the way you initiate and lead and care and serve others. Um, I think particularly as you relate to girls, I think you should be, I, I think chivalry is a, a legitimately biblical category. I think giving your seats up for girls, for like helping the pregnant lady who's at the coffee shop who can't carry all of her children, like helping her, that's a biblical thing. Opening doors, like I think, I think those things are rooted in what God desires for the genders. You should honor the other gender. You should relate to them. When you're interested romantically, be direct. Not too direct, not crazy direct, okay? All right? But direct. Don't sit around for six months until she's finally like, what is going on with us? You know, like, like no. Like, God, God desires you to initiate. Uh, girls, I think this is harder for you because uh, many of you are adulting, you know? Like, you're, uh, you're responsible for yourself, like you're doing a lot of the, you're doing a lot of the initiating in your life. Um, I think the challenge for you guys particularly is as you are a single girl and you are responsible for yourself primarily right now, and you're doing that, that you are cultivating 
in your life what First Peter says is a gentle and quiet spirit. Because that, that's, that was the, that, that's, the, that's the true beauty of a woman. I, I think, I think as, you, as you deal with the realities of life and the realities of our world where you're, you're probably working and you're initiating, you're doing stuff, that you're still, you are readying yourself one day um, to be able to follow someone else's lead. To be able to, to submit, as hard as that word is, uh, you know, to be able to, to even think in those kind of categories. Um, let me just give you guys a really awkward example. Okay. Uh, actually, I'll say one thing to girls. One thing to girls. I think girls, uh, one thing you can help with, uh, and one thing you do now, even if you're not uh, married or even if there's no prospects on the horizon, is you can, you can help guys by affirming and honoring their masculinity, even the faintest glimmers of it. So let me give you a, let me give you a tip about relating to guys. Uh, all guys, I think no matter how old, okay, at heart, are little insecure eight-year-old boys who are looking for affirmation, okay? No matter how good we are at hiding it, many of us are good, good at hiding it. We're very, you know, we, 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 can, we can cloak it, we can be, but almost all guys are desperate for affirmation. Any kind of leading like Jesus, where we step out and it could it cost us any, any kind of initiation is desperately hard for most guys. And most guys, uh, if they initiate and get shot down, it's like, I am never doing that again, ever, okay? Um, and I think one thing you guys, what girls can do is whenever you see even the tiniest bit of a guy initiating and leading in any respect, encourage that and honor that. Uh, again, I'll give you a messy example. Let's say girls, okay, out of left field, a guy that you have very much put in the friend zone, okay, ask, very directly asks you out on a date, all right? And you're like, well, like I was not expecting, like, you're like so caught off guard, you're like, ah, uh, yeah, okay, all right? Let me, let me give you some goals for that conversation, okay? First goal, okay, first goal, all right? You want him to leave that conversation feeling like you appreciated the fact that he was direct, that he initiated. You want, you want him to be encouraged by it. Even if you shoot him down, okay, don't shoot him down, but even if you do, okay, even if you do, all right, you want him to leave thinking, man, she appreciated that I was direct. Yes. Um, and I'll say too, guys, a guy who directly asks you out, that should be an attractive quality to you. And it's just one date. Just one, you're not you're committing your life to him, you know? He doesn't have to be the love of your life to go on a date with him. Just, anyways, well, I won't go there. <laughs> leave that to yourself, okay? Okay? Throw a guy phone. No, just kidding. Okay. Um, all right. So I know that that is, uh, so far, this principle is, first of all, just difficult, and second of all, difficult to apply. But the idea here is that written in your gender is a particular reflection of the image of God, a particular reflection of who God is in his Trinitarian glory, who Jesus is, who the Father is, and that God desires that you live out as a man or a woman uh, a part of his nature. That's the idea. Um, and as we'll see for the rest of the passage, Paul's desire is that that dynamic, that music, whatever you want to call it, is expressed in culturally relevant ways in the life of the church. Um, so again, we're in verses 4 and 5, 1 Corinthians 11. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So uh, first thing about this verse, all right, uh, it is very tricky and difficult. The word head is used literally in the first half of the verse, 
and then figuratively in the second other. We'll look at it again, okay? Uh, every man who prays or prophesies with his physical head covered, okay? He dishonors his spiritual head, who is Christ. Likewise, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head, physical head uncovered, dishonors her spiritual head. Uh, the, the logic there, okay, said it in verse 3, is that the head of every man is Christ, okay? And so if he expresses that he's submitting to his wife in public, he's dishonoring his true head, Christ. Does that make sense? I know that's, that's tricky. That's, that's tough to dissect, but that's there, okay? Um, the second thing, again, uh, this whole idea of covering one's head is a cultural, I think limited to the first century, a cultural expression of gender. So we don't have this in our culture. We have wedding rings, which come kind of close. They symbolize the covenant. We don't have head coverings. In Rome, in a very normal part of culture, women wore head coverings. It was a cultural thing. So, so it's, it's, it's the idea, though, is in verse 10, it's a symbol of authority, an expression that a wife is submitting to her husband. Um, and notice also that the issue is uh, what happens when the church gathers for corporate worship. Uh, the idea of men and women praying and prophesying, that's what happened when they gathered together. So the issue really is, it's not just the dynamic in the home, which will be addressed in different passages you know, in the scriptures, but in worship, as we gather together, what we're doing together, uh, even that should be distinctly gendered, if I can use that word. But again, don't lose the forest for the trees. The point is that in a culturally relevant way, whatever that looks like, you should express your masculinity or femininity um, in the context of the local church. And it's very difficult to apply. And before we do, uh, I'll just walk through uh, the rest of the passage, which is very, very difficult. Um, Paul gives some very strange reasons, but we'll walk through them briefly, and then we'll, we'll apply. So look at verse 6. If you're wondering, uh, if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Is this verse uh, prohibiting Christian women for having short haircuts? Is the bob off limits now? Okay, y'all see, I hear that? I know what a bob is. Anyways, uh, sorry. Um, uh, no, that's not what's happening. Again, I, I'm fairly convinced short hair in Roman culture was a disgrace for a woman. It was a mark of being a slave or a mark of something like that. It was a disgrace. Women wore long hair. It was their honor in that culture. So again, Paul's saying, if they're not going to cover their head, they might as well go the whole way and shave their hair. It's kind of a very strong statement, I think. Um, if they're not going to express their gender in the way God has designed, then they should go the whole way. Um, uh, verse 7, probably the hardest verse in the whole passage, I think. For man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So uh, this, is, this is tricky. Uh, I think what it means is that Adam, in creation, in Genesis 2, came directly from God. So Adam images God in that he came directly from God. Um, that, that whole idea of uh, whose head is who, okay, that was written in creation. Adam came directly from God. Uh, Eve came th- directly from God through Adam. Remember the story? Uh, God takes a rib out of Adam, he puts Adam to sleep, and he creates Eve. Um, I, think, I think that's the idea. So therefore, that reality written in creation, in the creation of men and women, that's another reason why it should be expressed in worship. 
tricky. Um, one thing that's cool about this verse, though, is it says in verse 7, uh, in, verse, in, in Genesis 2, okay, a uh, woman is made as a helper for man. Again, offensive. Wow, ouch. Paul doesn't say that. You'd think he would say that, referencing creation. He says woman is the glory of man. Uh, which is really wonderful. Uh, in the Genesis account, I wish we could go here, but uh, uh, when God creates Adam, it's just a very generic word for create. Um, when God takes the rib uh, out of Adam and creates Eve, it says that God fashioned her. There's this particular care in which God makes woman. There's this particular way in which women have the glory of beauty that men do not have. Um, and that's cool. I think Paul might be going there. He's saying, woman is the glory of men. Men glory in women. Um, and that's an honor. Also, look at, uh, look at verse 11. Uh, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now man is born of woman. So, uh, for those of you who would think that God's just given men all the priority. No, no, no. <laughs> Every man on earth has come from a woman. Men and women, even though there's this distinction in their roles, they are dependent on each other. There's this deep equality in God's sight, written in creation, written in the gospel. It's expressed in different ways. Um, one final thing, just verse 10. Uh, because of the angels. Okay, that's a tough one. Uh, I think the idea here is like, uh, like First Peter says, that the church... It's such a wonderful and crazy thing that angels long to look into it. Um, I, think, I think the idea here is that when we go to worship at 1045, when we're there and Dustin comes to the car or you're in traditional and you guys start singing, whatever, however it works, okay, that is a spectacle that angels long to see, that they look at. The whole universe watches when the church worships God. So I think that just brings uh, a little more weight to how we express ourselves in worship. That because we are on display to the universe, we should be careful how we express ourselves in worship. Okay, uh, that was tough. Uh, we don't have any direct parallel to this cultural marker of gender. Um, but I think there are two primary ways we can apply this, neither of which are particularly concrete, but things I want you to think about. Uh, first, um, I think it is God's will for the church to be a distinctly gendered place that in the body of believers in the Lord Jesus, at East Cooper, okay, men should be biblically, I'll say biblically, not culturally, okay, biblically masculine, and women should be biblically feminine. That someone who is very confused about gender, who, uh, so sidebar, I googled how many genders are there now, just for fun, okay, an Australian survey, and Australia is basically where America's at on this, 33 possible ways people can identify their gender. We're just making it up. Okay, anyways, uh, there's a lot of gender confusion in America, and I really think the church is going to start having um, refugees from this worldview, refugees from the sexual revolution, who, who their, their pursuit of their own identity leads them to wreck their lives, and they come to know Jesus, and now they're in the church, and they come with all sorts of baggage and confusion about who they are. And I think that someone like that should be able to walk into our church and to see two distinctly different, equal, but different kinds of people, men and women. It should be clear. Now, how does that work out? 
in all the concrete details, I have no idea. But I would just say uh, a great question to ask yourself if you are a guy is this. Am I expressing masculinity with my life? Does my life bear the marks of biblical masculinity? The way I treat others, the way I treat girls, the way I initiate, the way I approach my life and my ownership over my life, does it express masculinity? Girls, likewise. Am I developing what the scriptures call biblical femininity? Am I, am I, am I working at a gentle and quiet spirit? Am I checking myself when every urge in me wants to criticize how stupid guys are? Or, or to say, yeah, I hate when Leland teaches out of First Corinthians 11. You know? are, 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 you, are you working on developing the ability in the future to be able to follow someone's leadership? Um, I think secondly, uh, in the life of the church, uh, we should be very wary of and reject any theology that abolishes gender distinctions. And there's a, uh, and honestly, uh, the church at large is divided about this, all right? Um, there is a, a large portion of the evangelical church that identifies as egalitarian, which sounds like we're making women and men equal, which on the surface I agree with. We are equal before God. But the egalitarian viewpoint says that they are so equal, there are no distinctions whatsoever, you know? In a marriage, it's like a 50% part partnership where it's just kind of, they're both kind of in charge, and it just kind of works that way in the church. You know, everyone has the same roles. And guys, that's, that appeals, honestly, that appeals. It would be much easier that way. But I don't think you can read the Bible honestly and have that viewpoint. So God desires the church to be a gendered place. We should rejoice when it is. We should work on it in our own lives. Uh, and this is a more minor and maybe, maybe less offensive application. Um, for those of you who are antsy to get married, um, I think there's a, a great application to know what you are longing for, to have a, a realistic picture, a biblical picture of what marriage looks like. I think uh, one of the things we can be most guilty of in our generation is, is loving all the benefits of something um, and rejecting all of the responsibilities of something. You know, I, and this, I'm just going to say this. You got in my, people love to come to church and to enjoy the fellowship of the church, but they don't really like to join the church. You know? Um, I'd encourage you guys to join the church if you're here regularly. Um, likewise, I think uh, we long for the benefits of marriage, the fellowship, the sex, the building a life together, the having, the, the having someone there all the time. We long for those things, but we don't long for what the Bible's responsibilities of marriage. And so I would say uh, two things to someone who's single first. Develop yourself into someone who can function in a biblical marriage. Think about what that means for you, what, what the role God has in store for you in a real marriage. Not, not the dream one that you have in your head, okay? A real one. Think about that marriage. How can I, how can I develop myself into the kind of person who thrive under God's commandments for marriage? And then uh, I would encourage you to change what you look for. You're not looking for a soulmate who just makes your heart sing. You're looking for someone if you're a girl who can lead you, and if you're a guy who will allow, will help you lead them. I think that's a good way to say it. Will help you lead them. Right, listen, girls, a guy who is a 10, think Ben Affleck with a great sense of humor, good personality, million dollar bank, okay? A guy who's a 10, all right, who has no initiative and who does not want to lead a family, he's gonna be a miserable husband to you. 
Guys, a girl who's a 10 who thinks biblical gender roles are stupid and is dumb, she's going to be miserable to be married to. All right? Change what you're looking for. Look, look for a spouse based on biblical categories. Okay. Um, I think, uh, I hope you've had the passage opened up a little bit this morning. I think uh, we can be comforted by uh, the Apostle Peter, who said in 2 Peter, Peter 3 that uh, of Paul's letters, he said that there are some things in them that are hard to understand. I think we can, uh, I think we can feel like we're in good company this morning. Uh, and there are some things that are very hard to apply. Very hard to apply. This is one of them. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, I think 25th President of the United States, said, nothing in the world is worth having or worth doing unless it means effort, pain, and difficulty. And I think that uprooting our cultural assumptions about gender and working at developing either a masculine or feminine spirit in life, that is going to be exceptionally difficult. A lot of us in here haven't had good models, right? Others here have a lot of baggage. We've got a lot of difficulty. We've got a lot of resistance to this particular truth. Um, but I think, like Teddy said, it's going to be worth it. You know, um, I think... I think, think about the music you enjoy, whether it's the, you know, Star Wars soundtrack, or whatever you jam out to, okay? Think about how long it took the person playing to master that. If you don't, if you don't, if you don't believe it, just go home and pick an instrument up that you're not good at playing, okay? And try. You'll be terrible. It'll take, it takes years of practice to produce anything musically that is mildly enjoyable. And I think similarly, developing a deep masculinity and deep femininity as a part of our who we are is going to be work. It's going to be hard. But if we go about it, it will also be beautiful. It'll be what God intends for his people to display. It'll be like music. It'll be good to see and hear and listen to. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, uh, we again thank you that we that you have spoken. And now, um, now we pray that through... Through the Spirit, you would particularly speak to individual lives. Uh, there is so much room for misunderstanding and for just not applying what you've said or for applying it in wrong ways. And so we, we just pray that you would come and give us wisdom from above in how to respond to this particular passage this morning. Help us to live as men and women, we pray in Jesus' name.